I pray it has already been good to be in this place of worship today. We have been blessed in so many different ways already, and now we come to His Word. So if you have your Bibles, I trust that you do. If you can open with me to John chapter 20, the Gospel of John chapter 20. And we are here this morning celebrating the God of impossibilities. This day marks the central confession of our faith, that Christ is risen, He is risen indeed. Or as we say, we say it this way, the tomb was empty so that we don't have to be. The tomb was empty so that we don't have to be. And we're here today because we believe that Jesus literally and physically was resurrected from the dead. We do not believe that the resurrection was an analogy. We do not believe that this was a metaphor for anything. We're not here this morning um, celebrating that Christ got up when he was knocked down so that we can get up when we get knocked down too. Um, no, we believe that Jesus was physically and literally killed, that he was in the grave from Friday afternoon until Sunday morning. And on Sunday morning, he physically burst forth from the grave because as Acts 2 says, it was impossible that the grave could hold him. And when Jesus did that, he turned everything right side up. He turned everything the way that it should be. And just follow me here. If death would have had the last word, then we would have no reason to be here this morning. If death would have won in that weekend, we would have nothing to celebrate. So we're here saying that the resurrection of Jesus is not just a story that we tell. It is a reality that we believe and it changes everything. For Christianity did not begin with people who believe something. Christianity began with people who saw something. They saw the risen Savior and it changed everything. And if Christ is risen from the dead and we're here this morning declaring and saying that he has then nothing else can stay the same. If he is risen, nothing can stay the same. I think of the words of, of Wolfhart Panneberg. He was a German philosopher, and he said this, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it's a very unusual event. So we would agree with that. People rising from the dead is an unusual thing. And then second, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. If you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. For if Christ rose from the dead, then you have to accept everything that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then who cares what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teachings. The issue is whether or not he is alive. Our faith rises and falls with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we are here declaring today that something happened in first central or first century, excuse me, Israel 2000 years ago. We believe that a boulder was dropped into the ocean and that boulder is still producing ripples 2000 years later and thousands of miles away. This morning we are beginning a new sermon series, which is kind of a weird thing to begin a sermon series on Easter. But we are um, beginning a sermon series entitled Miracles, where we are going to spend the next, I think, 13 weeks focusing on the mind-blowing miracles of Christ found in the Gospels. And a miracle 
is what happens. Let me give you a definition. A miracle is what happens when the unexplainable runs into the undeniable. When the unexplainable, what we can't explain, runs into the undeniable that we cannot deny it away. And we are beginning this series on this day because we are taking on the miracle of all miracles. For I believe that if the tomb is empty, then anything is possible. If the tomb is empty, then every other miracle that we're going to talk about over the next 13 weeks is going to make sense. That Jesus has the power over all of those things. But it not only makes sense in his life, it means that anything is possible for us. It affects us as well. So this morning, let me just begin with a question and lay it before you. When it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the miracle of all miracles, do you believe? Do you believe? For here's what we're going to see this morning. It is, it is beautiful. We're going to see that because Jesus has conquered death, that he is able to meet us All of us, no matter who we are, no matter what we have done, he is able to meet us right where we are. This is the beauty of the resurrection. So this morning, I want us to quickly look at four ways in which Jesus met people after his resurrection, and more specifically, where he met them, and what that means for us some 2,000 years later. So we're going to take on this morning the whole um, chapter of John 20. I'm going to let you just kind of take your seats and stay seated, even though I know you're standing in your hearts, because we're going to kind of unpack this truth by truth today. So begin with me in John 20, beginning at verse 1. And if you see it, let me hear you say, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. When Simon Peter came following him, he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So the first truth I want us to see this morning is that Jesus meets us in our humanity. Jesus meets us in our humanity. On the first Resurrection Sunday, we're introduced to Mary Magdalene who first discovered the empty tomb and who immediately runs to tell Peter and also another disciple, one that we are told that Jesus loves. She tells them. And here's a little background information for us this morning. The Gospel of John introduces us to a disciple who is described as being the one that Jesus loved. Maybe just a little bit more than the others. This description only appears in the Gospel of John where he, strangely enough, John, is referring to himself. So don't miss this. John, in his Gospel, inspired by the Holy Spirit, would have us to know that Jesus loved him just a little bit more than he loved everybody else. So that's what John would have us to know. 
And then on three different occasions, I'm not making this up, in verse 4, in verse 6, and verse 8, John includes that he outran Peter to the tomb. So again, John also wants us to know that he and Peter started out for the tomb at the same time and that one of them won the race. John is basically saying, I won, I won, I shot the BB gun, you lost, you lost, you ate tomato sauce. It's basically what he is saying in this moment. And although John beat Peter to the tomb, he did not go in. And the point that really begins to rise to the surface, even on the greatest day in human history, is that John, this disciple that Jesus loved, maybe just even a little more than everybody else, this disciple could not get out of his own way. This disciple, his humanity shines through and through. And the truth for us is we all bring our humanity. We all bring ourselves to Easter Sunday. No matter how much we try to make it up, no matter how much we walked in the doors, and right before we got here, we took our halo and, and put it just right, and our wings, we fluffed them just right. We all bring our humanity with us, and praise God, Jesus meets us right where we are. And John sees two miracles at the tomb. He sees an empty tomb, and he saw the fact that a single man actually made his bed. And this is what we see in the Gospels, that everything was set just right. And, of course, that was a joke that fell flat, so I'll not use that one in the second one. But the miracle, he sees the empty tomb, and it says that he believed. He believed. Jesus meets us in our humanity. Now let's look at verse 11. And Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And she said, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have yet to ascend of the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So the second truth is, not only does Jesus meet us in our humanity, Jesus meets us in our sorrows or in our grief. Mary finds herself outside of the tomb, overcome by sorrow. And the angels ask her a question, why are you weeping? And think about the confusion that the angels have to have in this moment. All of heaven is rejoicing. All of heaven is praising God because Jesus is alive and is well, and yet one of his own followers is standing outside of an empty tomb weeping in despair. And the angels have to be going, what's she crying about? Why in the world? Why are you crying? What, what are you sad about in this moment? 
And then Jesus appears to her, but she doesn't recognize him. And think about this. She is so consumed by her grief, by her sorrows, that she doesn't recognize Jesus. And that is my fear for some of us here this morning, is that you are here and Jesus is here, yet because you are consumed by other things, you will miss him. Because you are consumed with other things, you will miss him. For it was not until Jesus called her name that she recognized who it was. And here's what I know. Easter is not a day of new messages. So most of us came in this um, church today knowing that you would hear a message on the resurrection. So this is not shocking what we're talking about today. Maybe you've heard this message over and over and over again throughout your life, and yet your life has remained the same. Yet maybe, just maybe, this morning something is different, and that Jesus is calling your name. And you know it's him, and you know what he's telling you to do. You know it's him, and you know exactly what it means. You know what it means that Jesus is calling your name. Do not ignore him. It reminds me of what God told Israel in Isaiah 43 when God says, Fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. Which leads us to the next encounter. Look with me at beginning at verse 19 of chapter 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors were locked where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So not only does Jesus meet us in our humanity and in our sorrows, number three, Jesus meets us in our fears. He meets us in our fears. Just think about that first resurrection evening. You would think the disciples would be um, together celebrating throwing a Jesus has risen party and having the resurrection eggs and doing all of these things, but that is not what we see. The disciples are hiding out of fear that they would be next. They said, there's a list. Jesus was number one. We're number two, three, four, five. They're coming for us. So they made sure the doors were locked. They probably barricaded themselves in the upper room. And yet Jesus came to them in the midst of their fear I love this. Locked doors could not keep Jesus out. Locked doors couldn't keep him out. And let me just say this. There are some here this morning, or who will be here, that you are, you are here physically, yet the doors of your heart are locked, and you have put barricades up. You came here with this subconscious fear that something in your life might change today so that you... You are now attempting to keep anything and anyone out. Yet Jesus is a master locksmith. <laughs> he is able, and he doesn't need tools at all. Which means today in your life and today in my life, Jesus can go where no one else can go. There is no place where you are that Jesus 
can't enter. His resurrection from the dead enables him to do what no one else can do. There is no one like him in all of the universe. And the point here is that Jesus came right in the middle of their meeting. Now, it would have been a little bit um, less powerful if Jesus would have stood outside the doors and said, Hey, guys, could y'all let me in? I'm out here, want to speak to you, and just let me in. That would have been a little less powerful, but that's not what happened. In the midst of locked doors, Jesus stood in their presence because he wanted them to see him, to know him, to believe in him, and to love him. And that's what he wants for us today. To know him, to have him draw near into our lives where no one else can go. To have him help us in our fear where no one or nothing else can help us. To have him come to us, close to us, where we say, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. That's what I'm praying for in this service and the next service. That Jesus would wipe away people's fears and he would enter where only He can enter in our hearts and our lives. Which leads us to the last little section of verses in verse 24. So follow with me here. In verse 24 it says this, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with him when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. So Jesus meets us in our humanity. He meets us in our sorrows. He meets us in our fears. And fourth, Jesus meets us in our doubts. He meets us in our doubts. Have you ever thought about this? Poor Thomas. Poor Thomas. No other disciple is named for their faults. But Thomas is. I mean, it's not jealous John or petrified Peter or bad Bartholomew. It's none of those things. But yet, doubting Thomas. He refused to believe without some evidence. He wanted to touch and fill the wounds of Jesus. And praise God, Jesus met him right where he was. And hear this, Jesus gave him exactly what he needed. And what he needed in that moment was not just to fill scars. What he needed in that moment was Jesus himself. And that's what Jesus gave him right in his Right in the midst of Thomas's presence, the unexplainable and the unbelievable collided in that moment with the undeniable. And let me ask you a question. We all have doubts. We all have things that we can't get to the bottom of and we can't wrap our heads around when it comes to our faith. What would happen to your doubts in the presence of the resurrected Jesus Christ? What do you think would happen to your doubts in the presence of Jesus And let me say this, if you know that your doubts would vanish away in his presence, then you're admitting that your doubts aren't the problem. 
you're admitting that what you believe about Jesus is the problem. Think about that. If you're saying, if you and I would confess, and we all would, if we were standing face to face with Jesus, all of our doubts wouldn't matter. Then our doubts aren't the issue. What we believe about Jesus is the issue. And this seems to be what John 20 is all about, believing. Believing, believing, believing. In fact, the chapter ends this way. Look at verses 30 and 31. John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Do you believe that Jesus is alive? And how has that belief changed your life? The word believe in the Greek is called pastuvio. And it doesn't mean just to believe that Jesus is someone or something or that Jesus just did something. It's to believe in who Jesus is, to believe in what Jesus has done, and to respond to Jesus appropriately. Or John 1.12 says this, we believe and we receive Jesus for who he is. We receive him for who he is. And let me lay this question before you this morning in closing. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the same way that you believe that Donald Trump is the president, or we're not making this political this morning, or the, the last president, that he was president, or whoever you like as your president, or whoever, whatever fact you want to include in that, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the same way you believe that someone holds an office somewhere, is that enough for you to be saved? And the answer is no. No. The devil believes in Jesus in a very real way. The demons believed in Jesus in a very real way. In fact, we are told that when Jesus came to the earth, the demons proclaimed, we know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. You're the Son of God. We know you. So the devil and the demons believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is resurrected, yet the devil and the demons will not be around the throne of God. So the question becomes, what is missing is not believing in the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. The devil believes that. So what's missing? And let me say this. What's missing is delighting in that fact. The demons and the devil won't make Jesus their treasure. They won't make Jesus their Lord. They will never surrender to Jesus. Yet when the Holy Spirit begins to work in your heart and my heart, you no longer just believe that Jesus is someone or that Jesus has done something. Instead, you will be led to delight in who Jesus is, to delight in what Jesus has done, and to surrender your life to him. That is what belief is. Do you believe in the resurrected Christ in that way? Have you surrendered to him and trusted him as Savior and Lord? In the midst of your humanity, in the midst of your sorrows, in the midst of your fears, in the midst of your doubts, have you surrendered to him? And let me end by just making this or giving this question and answering it. Why is it important? Why is it important to believe? Look back with me at verses 5 through 7 of John 20. Verses 5 through 7 of John 20, and it says this. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went to the tomb. 
He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. And there's a, a tradition, a Jewish tradition, and this is only a tradition that I've been able to see, but it reveals to us the important message represented by a folded face cloth. In order to understand the significance of a folded cloth, we have to understand a little bit of um, Hebrew tradition of that day. So the folded face cloth had to do with a master-servant relationship. And what I mean by that is this. Tradition says that when a servant had set the dinner table for um, his master, he would then the, the servant would then stand back out of sight and wait for the master to finish. So he would dare not touch the table, would dare not approach the master until the master was done. But the question becomes, how did the servant know the master was finished? Here's how. If the master was done eating, he would rise from the table, he would take the cloth, he would wipe his hands, he would wipe his face, he would wipe his beard, and then he would wad up this face cloth and he would toss it on the table. It was a sign to the servant that he was done. Yet if the master wasn't done eating and had to get up, what he would do is he would take the cloth and he would fold it up nicely and he would place it there. And when the servant saw it folded up nicely, he would say, my master isn't done yet. And here's the beauty of Jesus folding up that face cloth. He is saying this, I'm not done yet. I am coming back. So why is belief important? Because he is coming back. And what you do with him will last forever. Or to say it this way, right now counts forever. Right now, what you do with Jesus right now counts forever. Do you believe? Will you believe? Notice what I haven't asked you this morning. I haven't asked you whether you prayed a prayer. Satan has done a very good job of convincing people because they said words after somebody else that they have been saved. Now, I'm not saying if you pray to prayer that you aren't saved, but here's what I'm saying. Prayers don't save you. Jesus saves you. Jesus saves you. Satan has convinced us that we pray a prayer, we're saved, and every time we doubt it, guess what we do? We pray a prayer again and pray a prayer again. So guess what we're trusting in? Not Jesus. We're trusting in our power and our ability to pray a prayer. But Jesus never says, pray a prayer and you will be saved. It's trust me, believe in me. I am the one. I am your Savior. So what do we do today? Salvation is this. Salvation is understanding that we are sinners. We cannot save ourselves. Cannot. So therefore, we turn away from trusting in ourselves. We turn away from our sin. We repent and we turn to Jesus Christ and we trust him as our Savior and our Lord. And we are in that moment prepared to trust him, not just today, but for ever and he will be our savior forever in fact we sang that didn't we in victory jesus he's our savior forever and ever and ever do you believe will you believe oh i pray that you will christ is risen he is risen indeed and because he is risen he is able to meet us right where we are this very day If you can stand with me, I'm going to call Brother Frank and the musicians forward as we enter into a time of invitation and consecration where we say whatever it is that God is calling us to do, that we would respond to him.
Today, if Jesus is calling your name, you know it's Him. And you know what it means. You know what He's telling you to do. We ask you to be obedient to His voice. Let's pray. Father, we come before You. Jesus, we come before You as our resurrected Savior. Holy Spirit, we come before You who is at work in our midst by Your, by your Word. And Lord, we thank You for speaking into our lives today by Your Word, through Your Spirit. We pray for anyone in this room or who will be here that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day that they understand, Jesus, that you are meeting them right where they are. That you're able to meet them right where they are and you are able to do in their lives and through their lives what only you can do. Father, I pray that we would see people today turn from trusting in themselves Turn from their sin and turn to you, Jesus, trusting you as Savior and Lord. Father, I pray for others of us today, God, that we're believers yet. Right now, maybe we're filled with our humanity or, or sorrows and griefs. Maybe fears are eating us up or maybe doubts or maybe other things that we didn't cover today. And if we're not careful, we'll let, as Mary did, those things keep us from seeing you. Oh God, we ask, Lord, that you would allow those things to become smaller and that you would become greater. Finish this time today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.